0: thing is that we've been looking at this particular series we've been in. There's so much more behind the story. Every, I have the the privilege each week of of preaching to you, and that means that I have the privilege each week of spending lots and lots of time getting ready to preach to you. And so, um, I I, I learn so. There's there's so much that's left on the cutting floor. If you if if you know what I mean, if you've ever had to prepare any sort of lesson for anything, you know how much you you can, you know, get in, and, and I would, you know, I'm sure you'd like to get out of here by three o'clock every day, too, so I I leave a lot, you know, on the cutting floor. There's so much stuff that goes into each passage of Scripture in the Bible, and you know, just as Kaylee's saying, I mean, I, you know, obviously, there's a lot more to just the Christmas story than we than we may first realize. I mean, even even thinking about Mary and Joseph, there's more than they knew about the Christmas story than what they experienced from a moment-to-moment basis, and uh, one of the things, that I know that obviously Christmas is coming up, and you're probably already done with all of your Christmas shopping, I'm sure, um, or not, and so I, so I start like Christmas Eve morning, you know, that's, you go there, and you don't, the way it is, you know, at Walmart, by that time, everything's already taken, so it narrows down what you can pick from anyway, <laughs> And so for me, and I have trouble making decisions on that, It just narrowed there's like four things left. You just, you know, it's all discount, it's half off, so you just pick it. You know, save money and narrows down your options. Anyway, if you haven't done all your Christmas shopping yet, uh, one thing that I would encourage you to, to consider seriously for anyone in your life who you know is a, is a believer in Jesus Christ, someone who wants to follow Him, and maybe who, who wants to grow a little bit closer to Him, uh, one of the things I would encourage you to do is, is consider purchasing something for them that would help in that endeavor. Uh, be that, say, for your kids. If you have kids or grandkids uh, that, say, are in elementary school or, or middle or high school, they're of reading age, so to speak. I, w- I would encourage you to get them a real Bible. Uh, and, and there's nothing wrong with one that looks cool but, but actually has the full Bible in it. That's what I would encourage you to do. There are a lot of great Bibles for younger kids that are kind of the storybook kind of things, and those are good up until a certain point, but I would encourage you to begin to put in their hands the full Word of God, both the Old and the New Testament. Uh, also, if you look on the back of your bulletin, uh, draw your attention there real quick. Uh, all this stuff is free, by the way. Uh, this, this, uh, this upfront has nothing to do, really, uh, it does, but it doesn't with the rest of the message. Look at the very bottom. You'll see a web address for a blog. And I'm not trying to promote anything that I've written because none of it's going to get published and we're not, you know, not going to make any money on it, but it, hopefully it would be helpful. One of the things that I've posted there is a list of suggested resources. If you're a, a person who'd like to study the Bible just a little bit, understand it a little bit more, help it to make sense to you maybe just more than it does, there's a list of resources there. Uh, things like uh, you know, just having two or three versions of the Bible to kind of give you some, some different ideas about it, a Bible dictionary, some uh, a commentary, and so on. That's all listed there and uh, giving you some, some, hopefully, some explanation on, on how that could help. I say all that because it, at Christmas time, you may be uh, in a position to purchase something for someone that could really help them and pay dividends a long time down the road, far past what I would get you know, on Christmas Eve morning from Walmart on the discount shelf that would be thrown away the next day. So uh, anyway, uh, I would hope that, uh, that maybe you'd, you'd, you'd do that for somebody this year. Uh, as we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks, we'll continue to until the end of December, we're looking at uh, just kind of getting beyond the manger uh, and, and seeing. Obviously, we see the nativity scene. We see the Charlie Brown story. We hear the song, and, and, and we realize through all of it, there's so much more to the story. Each one of those examples hints towards something more. Uh, Nancy and I, about a week and a half ago, took the kids to a live nativity that was over at the expo, and maybe you went to that, and it was very well done, and we walked in, and we were one of the first in line, and so we we got right on in there, I guess before the animals had made too much of a mess and so uh, we we got in there and and each station was a different part of the story. Is that me banging against this microphone? Is that what's happening? okay, good um, I guess um, anyway each each station you, you get to there was there was a scripture reading that read different parts of the story, and so uh, the first one you walk up to there you know there was the angel appearing to. To Mary and telling her that she was going to have a child and then the next one you get to the, the angel appears to Joseph after he's found out that she's pregnant and he's really nervous and 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 he the angel tells Joseph everything's going to be just fine the next one was was Mary and Joseph taking the trip to Bethlehem the next one was the the angels appearing to uh, to the to the shepherds and then you follow that by the wise man and then we got free food which made the whole evening worthwhile so um we got free supper out of the deal it was nice and so Anyway, uh, each one of those stations was really well done. They were all in costume, and they had real animals, and the camels were kind of interesting and what they were chewing on all the you know the hay and all that stuff and it was camels are just really odd looking i you know forgive me, but they're just really they're odd looking and I, our kids were they, the looks on their faces were priceless, just kind of they were this you know from from me to drew from you know from the camels they they'd never been that close up before and they're just kind of anyway and so each one of them was really well done and yet I walk away. From that, and I think i just I just wonder if somebody comes through there and doesn 't really know the story, do they think that that's that's like the end well, that 's it there it is that 's what Jesus was all about. He was born I mean, And that's where it stops and and there's nothing wrong with telling that story, obviously I mean those people did a really great job, and I 'm glad that we have those kind of things, but there's just so much more behind the story, and we 're going to look this morning at the the actual events. Uh, where, where Mary and Joseph take that trip to Bethlehem and where Jesus is born. And so uh, if you got your Bible, I want you to turn with me to the book of Luke, which is in the New Testament. If you don't know anything about the Bible, go to the table of contents. Look up, book of Luke, L-U-K-E, Luke. And we're going to be in chapter 2 in the verse... I don't like standing behind the pulpit, so I've got to use this other microphone, I guess. But anyway... Um... <clears throat> We're going to look at Luke chapter 2. I also want you to, I want you to get your place there. And, I want, and if you got the, the ribbon in your Bible or something, I want you to mark your place somewhere else too because we're going to flip there a little bit later on. And, uh, and I want you to be able to see the Scripture, but I don't want it to take us forever to get there. How about that? So let's do uh, Ephesians chapter 6 as well. So just mark a place in Luke chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 6. Is that, I don't think that's me. I really don't. I, I'm, I've done everything I know to do. I stand like... I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't think it's me. Um, it, whatever. Um, what's that? think so. Are we still on? There we go. Whatever. I love modern technology. Um, it's great when it works, but not so much. By the way, we have guys that work every week back there, and you guys do an outstanding job. Thank you very much for serving you guys are they're all young fellas and they certainly don't have to be here and don't have to serve in that way so thank you very much for doing that every single week most of the time you never notice them because nothing like you know little things that they can't control you know happens and so anyway thank you Uh, in Luke chapter 2 we're gonna we're gonna try to determine today what the the events of the birth of Christ can teach us because as I mentioned there is more to the story than just reading the story itself and I remember when I was a kid, this was the story that my dad would always read to us at Christmas time. And, and just uh, kind of out of a family tradition, we'd sit and we would read the story. And, and yet, if you know anything beyond the story, you know this isn't really where it begins or where it ends. And so, look with me at Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Your version may be a little bit different than mine, but we, we all get the same thing here. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in cloth and laid him in a feeding trough for a manger because there was no room for them at the end. This is the greatest miracle that ever took place. God coming to earth in the form of a human. The greatest miracle ever. There's no healing. There's no uh, raising somebody from the dead that has ever been greater than this first miracle of God coming to earth. And so we see in this, there's a huge and rich context around these verses. A lot that goes that, that's kind of led up to this and a lot that happens after it. And, and so it teaches us a couple of things. I want to give you the whole point of the message up front. Now, for some of you, uh, this, I guess, would be your cue. You write it down, you're done, you walk out, good to go. You get the whole point today, but I would hope that you'd hang with me for just a little bit. If you see on the back of your bulletin, if you, if you enjoy following along whatsoever, you, you have the, the freedom to do that. If not, no big deal. You forget 80% of what you don't write down, so write something down. Um, anyway, when I was a youth pastor, they just used to sit and draw pictures of me. Which, you know, the progression of my hair over the years was interesting to see as I traced over several years. But anyway, uh, but, but the whole point of the message, here's what I want you to get. I, I want you to, to get the, the, the point that we're going to look at today is the fact that the, the events of the birth of Jesus teach us to remember who's really in control and operate accordingly. Remember who's really in control and operate accordingly. You'll see this stuff, it'll pop up on the, on the screen behind me and you can follow along in your bulletin. Remember who's really in control and operate accordingly. As we look at some of the people and events that took place in this story, you'll see, first of all, that Caesar Augustus is mentioned. Now, this guy was an interesting character. His previous name was Octavian. He was the grand-nephew of Julius Caesar, and he was uh, later adopted to be the son of Julius Caesar because uh, Julius Caesar had no heir, and so Octavian was taken and, and made the heir to the, to the throne of, uh, of Rome. Uh, he was, uh, Octavian was the one who defeated Antony and Cleopatra and established the Roman Empire. He was, that's who we're talking about. He was that guy. And so all this happens at the same time Jesus is being born, a few years before him and then obviously leading up to it. And, and he was given the title Augustus, which means exalted or anointed one. And if you know anything about the word Messiah, you know that that's what that word means as well, anointed one. And so uh, he, he established what was known as the Peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, and, and during his reign and for several years after, there was peace in Rome, and, and the people enjoyed prosperity. He also delivered his own gospel for the Roman people. Uh, it was a gospel according to Caesar Augustus, and in which he claimed that he was... Uh, divine or, or was a god and was bringing them peace. And so he was, he was uh, their, their prince of peace. He was given complete control by the Roman Senate. Uh, and through his reign, he established a lot of moral legislation, things that promoted family and so on and marriage. Uh, he was eventually given the title Pontifex Maximus, which is known as their high priest. And he was given not only charge, obviously, of the Roman government, but of the Roman religion. And at his death, the Senate declared him to be a god. They they gave him divine status upon his death. And so, when we see that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, in those days there was no question in anyone's mind who was really in control. I mean, it was Caesar Augustus. He set a decree, and it was law. It happened. And and he may have pushed through some good legislation, but if he got a, if you got on his bad side, then you knew what was going to happen. He was in total control. And. And he was in charge of Rome at its peak. So to most people, there was no question. Who's in charge? Caesar. Augustus is in charge. There's no question. And yet, we see through this story that his plans uh, only serve God's greater purpose. Because it's interesting to note that his strengthening of the government, his improvement of the financial market, his, uh, his communication improvements, his improvements in safety for the Roman Empire, eventually paved the way for the safe passage of the gospel through people like the Apostle Paul and other missionaries to take the gospel to where it probably could not have gone before. And so Caesar Augustus, in all his splendor and all his greatness, was simply a pawn in the hand of the Lord. And it's interesting that he was a king and a chief priest and declared to be a god. He was their prince of peace, a deliverer of his own gospel. And I I've often wondered why in the world did God pick the time that he picked to send Jesus into the world. But if you consider all that was going on, that Caesar Augustus was declared to be a God, who had his own gospel for the people, the Prince of Peace, according to the Roman government, is it any wonder that Jesus would show up at that particular time? The true Prince of Peace, as we looked at last year, the wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And so Caesar's decrees set this story in motion, but not really. Because God used that decree simply to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. And so, despite all his greatness, Caesar Augustus wasn't really in control. And so, as we look at that, and we understand the fact that if, if he's not in control, and if, if his decree was simply used by God for a greater purpose, then that's certainly through Caesar Augustus we can learn to view authority a little bit differently. We can view authority a little bit differently. There, there are uh, obviously different authorities in our lives. I've, I've had different ones, be it teachers or baseball coaches or professors or uh, people that I've worked for or, or just you know w- whatever it may be. My parents, obviously, and and you think about where you work or where you did work or where you'd like to work. There's always a an authority there. If you if you or even retired, I'm sure you can quickly put yourself back into the position in your mind of I remember working for that person or or this person. I you know he was a good boss or she was really good, but you know that, that other person he was he was rotten. I didn't like him at all and, and 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 there's obviously the the fact that we do have authorities in our life that can be in our work. if you still have your place kept in Ephesians chapter six, I'd like for you to look there real quick. If we're going to view authority differently, and we see that we can, obviously, because Caesar Augustus was not really in charge, check it out what it says in Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 5. Slaves, you ever felt like a slave at work? I know, maybe you worked for somebody in here. Don't, don't raise your hand if that's the case. But <laughs> Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling. In the sincerity of your heart, so you receive a paycheck it says in the sincerity of your heart as to christ it's interesting your paycheck is not the most important thing don't work only while being watched in order to please men you ever done that come on now i you know i i've been there you just i when i was a teacher they we knew when the principal was going to come in to observe us i'm telling you what my lessons that day were awesome man they were good rest of the time i'm not so sure but slaves to Christ, do God but as slaves to Christ, do God's will from your heart. Render service with a good attitude, as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters treat them the same way, without threatening them, because you know that both their and your master is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. It's interesting that Caesar Augustus despite all his earthly authority, was not really who was in control. The transferable principle becomes obvious as we read Ephesians 6 that the authority that you have or had in your employment is not really in control. You really don't work for them. You work for the Lord. And that immediately becomes obvious to me then there's no meaningless work. There is no meaningless work. I... I want to say to, to some of you that you may feel like that you have the most meaningless job in the entire world. Uh, you know, I, I know people in, in my own family, an extended family, who they've mentioned to me before, oh, you know, what I do really doesn't it doesn't matter. I just go to work and I just get a paycheck. And the truth is this, that because your real authority is not the person that you work for, not the company that you represent, but is Jesus Christ himself, there is no meaningless work because every single thing that you do, reflects what you think about God every single thing it it reflects what you think about who's really in charge because if if you say well you know I I don't really I don't really like that person so I'm not going to do my job as well well then that, that means that you've just yielded authority in your life to that person instead of Jesus Christ you may not want to think about it that way but the bible makes it pretty clear that that's the deal and so as a result there's no excuse for being a bad employee I, There's no excuse. I've been a bad employee before. There's no excuse for that. None whatsoever. Maybe you've been a bad employee. There's no excuse for showing up late. No excuse for not doing your job. No excuse for treating your boss poorly. No excuse whatsoever. And again, we we know that, that if you are in authority over people, that the Bible is clear, that you ought to return the favor and treat them as if you're working for the Lord and not just towering over them. And so because because we remember who's really in control it helps us view authority differently so the people that we work for work with we realize that they're not really in control and it changes your entire outlook. Ephesians chapter 6 if you still have your place there it also talks about parents and most of us in here um, were at some point a child. I know that, again, some of you were just born grown up and you've never experienced that. And, and, and yet, maybe, maybe you've heard this scripture before, Ephesians chapter 6. Look at verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Now, everybody who's a kid, teenagers and all, are ready to, ready to leave. Hang with me. Children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may have long life in the land. And fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. If you're a young person, you still live at home today. or Maybe you're a little bit older person, you still live at home. Whatever it is, you, you, are, you are instructed to obey your parents, not because of necessarily whether they're always right or always wrong, but because God is ultimately in charge, and He has placed them as the authority in your life like it or not but the great news is this that regardless of what kind of parents you have they're not your ultimate authority and so it's not their approval that you seek it's not it's not their allowance that you're trying to get it's simply trying to please god by your relationship with your parents and it becomes obvious then if we are to obey our parents in the lord that there's no excuse then for rebellion i've often told teenagers that they they don't have to be a rebellious person. That's a choice that you make. And so I know that that many times we just say, well, that's just part of being a teenager. And I I think that's uh, about as bogus as it can get, I'll be quite honest with you, because uh, the Bible makes it clear that our true authority is not our parents. And as a result, if we choose to rebel against our parents and do things that we know are wrong, and we're really not rebelling against our parents, what we're doing is setting ourselves up in rebellion against God. And, and, and it, it, then that it changes the ballgame just a little bit. There's no excuse then for a rebellious attitude or, or for disrespect, because when it comes right down to it, disrespect then is not disrespect toward your parents, but ultimately toward God. That's simply the way he set it up. Now, those of us who are out of the home are not exempt from this passage of Scripture because it says honor your father and mother. And I don't know what your relationship is with your father and mother, if, if, if you're blessed to still have them alive. I don't know what your relationship is with them. I know that for some of us it may be a little bit strained, it may be a little bit difficult. For others, uh, it, it may be distant. They just may not be in the picture because they don't, they don't live close to you. Or For others, you may be very close with them, but the, the Scripture is true that as long as you are a child, as long as you have parents, you are to honor your father and mother. Now, what do you, well, how in the world do I do that? Well, it may be as simple as just caring for them, looking after them as best you can, calling them from time to time making sure that they know that you love them in some way. Well, you say, well, my parents never returned love to me. They don't even want anything to do with me. Well, I believe that, that honoring your parents may be as simple as doing for them what you simply would do for any other elderly-type person, if that's what they are. And that may mean that you try to help them in some way financially. I don't know what it looks like to you. I would encourage you to search out the Scripture and how can you honor your parents in the proper way even if you don't have a great relationship with them. Because ultimately, your relationship with them is not what God views then as most important. It's because when you honor and respect and care for your parents regardless, then you're honoring, respecting, and caring for God. And that's what he's most concerned about. And so as we remember who's really in control and operate accordingly, it changes our view of authority toward our employment, toward our parents. And then the one that we're all under, maybe I haven't hit on one that you're under yet. Maybe you're not under uh, employment-type authority because you don't work anymore, or you don't work at all, and, and maybe you, you don't. You, your parents are not really in the picture, but we certainly all live under the government's authority. In Proverbs chapter 21, you don't have to turn there. You may want to write down the reference briefly. But, but uh, Solomon gives the, the illustration. Now, you have to understand who Solomon is. Solomon was the wisest and most powerful king uh, probably ever, and and he certainly was the wisest man who's ever lived. The Bible makes that clear. And during his time, no one was more powerful than him. And yet Solomon makes it clear in Proverbs chapter chapter 21, verse 1. He says that, that the hearts of kings and rulers are like a channel of water in the Lord's hand. Picture that just for a second. A channel of water, it's moving somewhere. And yet it's in God's hand. And, and he goes on to say in that verse that he turns it whichever way he wants to. Now, sometimes we wish he'd turn a little different way. I understand that. Some of you voted because you thought we ought to turn a little different way. Some of you voted because you thought we ought to keep it the same. You, you know, we'll vote again in four years based upon which way we think God ought to turn the tide. But the truth is this, that God has those rulers. He has the, the president of the United States and the president-elect. And he has every ruler of every country, every powerful leader, right in the palm of his hand, the Bible says. And he can turn them whichever way. He wants to. And so that ought to immediately change our view of the authority of the government in our lives. Now you may say, well, good, because I don't want anything to do with the government whatsoever. I don't want anything they have to tell me. That's not what I'm talking about. What we then learn because of that is that the government is neither our greatest ally. And some of say, amen, I know that. But it's, it's not our greatest enemy either. There are so many people who want the government to be our greatest ally. Well, the government just do this. Good grief, everything will be fine. If they would just get this law passed, if they would just do this for people, everything would be great. Or, you know, it's because of the government that this happened. And we, just, we either we either rely on them to be our best friend or we hate them tremendously, and they're our greatest enemy. And, and, and somewhere in between, I think, is where God would probably want us to fall, and, and, beca- and, and all because that we realize that the government is not who's really in control. When Barack Obama takes office in January, there will be a lot of pomp and circumstance and a lot of honoring to him, and as well we should. But at the same time, in the back of my mind and probably in the front of my mind, I'll remember Proverbs 21.1, that that his heart is in the, the palm of God. And God can turn him whichever way he wants to. And, and, and that doesn't mean that we shouldn't respect our president. That just means we ought to understand and put it in proper perspective. And so Augustus was no rival for God. And if Augustus was no rival for God, then certainly God has no rivals whatsoever because the world has probably not known a more powerful ruler than Caesar Augustus. So then what is our responsibility toward our, our government, toward that authority in our life? 1 Timothy chapter 2. You don't have to turn there, maybe write down the reference, but check this out. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, Paul writing to Timothy, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good, and it pleases God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Our primary responsibility for our government, beyond just paying the taxes and and following the laws and doing the things that we know that keep us out of jail and so on, is to to go before God on behalf of people who may not go before God. I, I you know we understand obviously that not every political leader in our country is a believer in Jesus Christ, and so that heightens our responsibility. I think to go before God on their behalf, that prayers, petitions, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for kings and all those who are in authority. And it's not just so things will be okay for us. It's because in verse three, this is good and it pleases. God our Savior. You may disagree with every government policy that's ever been made. I have no idea where you stand with the government. You may not agree with Barack Obama being president. You may be all for it. I have no idea. But the responsibility comes to us to take those leaders before God because, number one, it pleases God. Number two, they may not be doing it themselves. And so when we remember really in control and operate accordingly, it changes our view of authority. We begin to view that differently. Caesar Augustus, though, was obviously not the only person in the story it says in verse 4 and joseph also went up from the town of nazareth in galilee to judea to the city of david which is called bethlehem because he was of the house and family line of david to be registered along with mary who was engaged to him and was pregnant joseph and mary in the story i mean think about the christmas story up to this point it's got to have been extremely chaotic for them she's pregnant forced to travel Uh, their wedding plans were all messed up we had a wedding here yesterday it was beautiful Everything, to my knowledge, happened at least close to the way it was supposed to. I've been involved in wedding plans before, but the wedding happened, and and think about Joseph and Mary, totally chaotic. The wedding was totally not going to happen the way they thought it would, and And life had been difficult and confusing for them. They didn't know everything that was going to happen before it happened. Sure, the angels had shown up to them and given them an inkling as to what was going to happen, but when this decree went out, there's no record that they knew that they were going to have to travel when she's probably somewhere in her late second or or somewhere in her third trimester. They had no idea that that she was going to have to travel then, and this census probably seemed a little bit random to them, just at Caesar's whim because he wanted to count everybody and later use that for taxing probably seemed a little bit unfair you ever felt like that that God's plan is a little bit unfair that, that why do I have to go through all this and, and yet we realize that through Joseph and Mary we can view God's plan differently we learned through Caesar Augustus to view authority differently through Joseph and Mary to view God's plan differently because we remember who's really in control and we understand that the whole world had to be registered just so Joseph and Mary could just so the prophecy from Micah chapter 5 that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem could be fulfilled. And God, who had the heart of a king in his hand, decided, give out a decree that everybody should be registered. Because from Nazareth, I want to bring Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem so that my son can be born and fulfill the prophecy from Micah chapter 5. You see how God's working, how his plan is not random. How it's not just at the whim of some leader. This trip that they took was... Part of the plan of God, and sometimes it's true that the plan of God seems to be a little bit more than we can take. She was pregnant. You ever travel with a pregnant woman? Have you? I have. Last year, 2007, Nancy and I moved from Louisville, Kentucky to Atlanta, Georgia. In June, we had discovered in January of that year that Nancy was pregnant, so she's about six months pregnant, packing up our home. The only, really the only home that we had known, the only home our two children at the time had lived in. And here we are packing all this up. She's six months pregnant. We moved six and a half hours, 400 miles down the road. And, and five years before that, before we had any children, we had, we had said that when, at the moment that Cal Ripken Jr. retired from the Baltimore Orioles, who was my favorite player... <clears throat> We had said that in five years he's going to be inducted in the Hall of Fame, and we're there in Cooperstown, New York, no matter what. We moved in June. The end of July was his Hall of Fame induction. So we, we had no idea five years before we planned this trip that five years later we would already have two children, one more on the way with a now seventh-month pregnant wife, and, and we would have just moved 400 miles further from Cooperstown, New York, that trip with Lucy and Hank at ages, what, four and two, and Nora at seven months in a gestational period, uh, was 16 hours worth of driving, and yeah, one way. And so we, <laughs> yeah, and so we loaded up the, the van with all the DVDs that we could find for the kids, and here we trucked up to New York in the middle of nowhere. If you have any clue about New York, Cooperstown is not in it. It's just there's nowhere, and so we go to Cooperstown, New York. Have you ever traveled? I mean, my wife's great. I have to give her credit because a few years before that, when she was pregnant with Lucy, at about 33, 34 weeks, we flew to Fort Myers, Florida, with a baseball team. It's always something with baseball for me. I don't. Anyway, um, this trip for them, for Joseph and Mary, would have been pretty difficult. But regardless of how far along she was, the Bible doesn't expressly say that she was about to pop, and yet at the same time, she was pregnant nonetheless. And so it can seem to be, God's plan can seem to be more than we can take. Sometimes it doesn't make sense or seems unfair, certainly can be unexpected. But the truth is that even though this census would have been viewed by the Jewish people and probably Joseph and Mary to be just the representation of all they despised about the Roman government, the truth is this, sometimes God uses things and people that we despise to fulfill His plan and to bring about in us what He wants. You ever look back down the road just a little bit and you realize, you know what, I wouldn't have chosen that path. There's no way I would have chosen to go through that. Or had that person say this or had that encounter. I just wouldn't have chosen that. But you know what, I I realized what God was doing. You ever look back and try to connect the dots just a little bit? I mean, it's hard to look forward and connect the dots, but when we look back, we understand, you know, God used that event that was really painful in my life to somehow bring me to this point where He's grown me more than, than He would have had I not gone through that. And God used that person. I don't even like that person, but God used that person to do something in my life, to grow me in a way that I wouldn't have grown. Ever look back and done that? God sometimes uses things like that. And then Jesus was born and placed in a manger. God often has something different in mind than we have. His thoughts, the Bible says, are not our thoughts. They're so far above ours that we can't even get there. And and to understand this, that for Jesus, the Messiah... To come to earth in this way to have no place to stay and to be put either in a stable or some people believe in a cave where animals were kept and then to be laid in a manger would have been totally contrary to every jewish thought they could have ever had about their messiah he was supposed to come in glory and defeat all their enemies and take over you ever wonder why god does things a certain way god, that didn't make any sense i wouldn't do it that way i've said that to god before Lord, I I just wouldn't do it that way. And yet, I'm sure God it kind of smiles, and as he kind of prods me along just a little bit, he takes me back to, you know what, I didn't even bring my son in the world the way that most people thought I should have done that. And yet, if you understand the life of Jesus as it plays out, that he, was, he, he told us that we must come to him humbly as a child. And that's how he came to us. And so we learn to view God's plan differently. And you think about it as we wrap-up, if Augustus, if Joseph and Mary, if none of them were in control of this story, then clearly we're not in control either. And as a result of that, we learn to view ourselves differently. And this is what I want you to make sure that you get today. To view ourselves differently. I mean, think about it. There was no welcome wagon, no marquee flashing Joseph and Mary now arriving. There was nothing. The Messiah is here. There was nothing. They didn't have a place to stay. And so the story was not about them. The angels, when they show up to the shepherds, they showed up announcing Jesus. When the shepherds went to where Jesus was, they they fell down and worshipped Jesus. When the wise men came, they brought gifts to Jesus. Joseph and Mary were in the story, but the story was not about them. Because without Jesus, there is no story. There's no story to be told without Him. And that helps us view ourselves differently, because we realize I'm not in control. You know, the one thing that probably pushes us further away from God than anything else is our self-worship and our self-confidence and and, and doing things ourselves. It's that me worship kind of thing. It's, well, that's not me. But how many times each day do you really, really, really consult God? God says, so you know what? Minute by minute today, I want you to be all over me. I want to live for you. Now, what we what we normally do. If you're like me, if you're just human, what we normally do is just rely on intuition, winging it, I'll figure it out. And it's that self-centeredness first of all, keeps us from God to begin with, because in order to receive Jesus as your Savior, you have to get past yourself and realize you can't get to God on your own. And so we realize that I'm not in control, and that I'm lost without Jesus, both for eternity and for today. I'm spiritually bankrupt without Him. i got nothing. I have absolutely nothing without Him. And when I view who's really in control, remember that, and operate accordingly, then then that's great, because God's really in control. Because with Jesus, though I'm lost without Him, with Him, I have everything that I've ever wanted and ever needed. And and then I realize that when He's really in control, that the Bible is clear that my life is to be an extension of His. That every event, every encounter, every situation is an opportunity to either live for him or live for me. Every one of them. And you may not have ever looked at life that way, but it's very clear. If you think about your life, if you know anything about the Bible, that every situation presents you with the opportunity. Are you going to live for God and obey him in this situation, trust him, or are you going to do things on your own? Every situation, every encounter, every event. Think about this as we close. This week, This week you'll encounter authority. Be it in your employment or elsewhere or maybe your parents or just the government or just authorities in general. You'll encounter authority this week. You'll also encounter God's plan this week and it may not seem to be what you thought that it ought to be. You'll encounter it this week and you'll encounter yourself this week and be face-to-face with who's really going to be in control. And in every one of those situations, as you encounter authority, as you encounter God's plan, as you encounter those tendencies in yourself to do things on your own, the question will be every single time, who's really in control? Who's really in control? And the challenge will be to operate accordingly. And when you know that God is really in control, that we see through this story that the greatest authority known to man at the time was not in control. It changes our view of authority. And we see that God's plan, though it may have been confusing and a little bit difficult, was not random, was not on some whim. It was calculated and meticulous that he had a purpose for what he was doing. It changes then our view of God's plan. And we become more open to it. And then ultimately we realize that this story is not about caesar augustus and his authority this story is not about joseph and mary and how great they were this story is about one person and one person alone and that's jesus christ and as a result we view ourselves differently because if that story wasn't about them then our story certainly isn't about us And we begin to say you know what i'm not in control And I'm lost without Jesus. Every moment of every day, no matter how young or how old I am, no matter if I'm new at this Christianity thing or if I've known Jesus for years and years, I am lost without Him. And then we realize that, you know what, my life is to be an extension of His. Every single encounter, every event, every situation, I'm presented with a choice. Who's really in control, me or Him? My challenge to you is to remember who's in control. And to operate accordingly, it will set you free. It will absolutely set you free in life. Because then life is not dependent upon you and what you can manufacture, and life is not dependent upon your authorities, and it's, it's, it's dependent only on Jesus Christ. And when you get to that point, life is lived the way that it was meant to be lived from the very beginning. So maybe you need to, to talk to God and just say, you know what, I... I want you really in control. I'm going to acknowledge you as really being in control. And I'm going to live my life as an extension of you in every single moment. I'm going to look at the Scripture to figure out how in the world I'm supposed to do that, and that's what I'm going to go and do. And so as we leave today, that's the challenge today, both for you and for me, to remember who's really in control and to go operate accordingly in every situation we face. If you have questions about what it means... To know Jesus in a very real way, certainly be happy to talk with you and help you understand, show you from the Scripture what it really means. If you'd like someone to pray for you, just say I, I'm struggling with a particular issue. I'd be happy to pray with you. So would some other folks in our church, no doubt. If you say I, I'd like to know what it means to join this church, what what does it? How can I become a part of this church? I'd be happy to answer your questions. And in just a moment, as we stand and sing, if that's Maybe a way you need to respond is to maybe walk down, let's talk for a minute, or ask a few questions or pray, whatever it is. I challenge you to do that. Or catch me after the service, give me a call this week, shoot me an email, I'll be happy to follow up with you. But don't leave here not remembering who's really in control and being challenged and encouraged to go out and operate according. There's freedom found in living for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father... But I thank you for the people that you have assembled to be Elm Grove Baptist Church. God, together, may we challenge one another and encourage one another to remember who's really in control. And God, I, I thank you it's not me. God, I thank you it's not us. And it's not anything that we can see, but it's Jesus Christ alone. And so, Lord, remind us of that each day. God, give us the wisdom, the courage, the strength to live our lives as an extension of yours in every situation, every encounter. God, may we so be filled with what your Scripture talks about that it becomes easy to do that, challenge us, Lord, to do that. God, for those who have questions, for those who need prayer, for those who are struggling, Lord, give us the courage now to respond if need be. I ask your blessings on the rest of our day. In Jesus' name we pray.